Welcome to the official podcast for Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization. I'm Beth, a.k.a. Triumvir Clio. Hello again. Welcome back. Happy August, if you're listening on the day this drops. I'm writing this in July, so my brain is convinced that I'm so far ahead on getting episodes into the queue. (laughs) Yeah, I'm only about a week ahead. How is this year going so fast? I'm technically at a conference this week, which is a nice change of pace, even if the virtual nature of it means I'm still sitting at my desk in my little home office in my bedroom. (laughs) But it's nice to talk to new people, and I do have to say hello to anyone I met over this week who is now listening to this little passion project of mine. But let's get on with it, right? Today we are going to finish Virgil's Georgics. As previously noted, I'm working from the David Ferry translation. Highly recommend it. It's lovely. Anyway, in books one through three, we learned about farming and wine and trees and horses and cows and sheep and goats. You could make a decent meal from everything that he's covered, but it might be lacking a certain sweetness. So maybe a little honey would be a nice touch. And bees and beekeeping and bee metaphors are the focus of book four. Virgil begins with beekeeping. He describes how to pick the right spot for your hives and different ways to build a hive. And then he starts talking about the bees themselves. He gets it sort of right. I mean, it is a very patriarchal view of bees. They have a king, apparently, and they do battle with the bees who serve other bee kings. Uh, You should just make sure to keep the best king. He does recognize that what he calls a king, and what we really know is a queen, looks different than a drone. But his basic point is that you need to have a welcoming place for the bees to live, and if they aren't working hard enough, just tear the wings off the king and they'll learn. Virgil then goes on a digression about all the other things he could write about if this epic were going to be longer, but it's not, so he's not going to talk about them. Then he gets back to the bees, now going into their family structure, which is, well, again, he gets it sort of right. He gets that different bees have different jobs, but you know how the birds and the bees are a euphemism? Kids, if you're listening, you can ask your parents. Let's just say that Virgil's bees are completely useless in that euphemism. You see, according to Virgil, bees don't have babies. They pluck them from the leaves of the trees, which I, it's on par with the stork, frankly. And then Virgil provides instructions on how to harvest the honey from your hives and how to care for your bees when they get sick, because like all living beings, they can and do get sick sometimes. But if you have a total hive collapse, well, that requires more drastic measures. And frankly, I don't know why people aren't using this method today when we are having serious issues with hive collapse, right? Yeah, just wait. You need to go back to the source where bees originally came from. The blood of a sacrificed cow, obviously. I mean, of course, you already knew that, right? Why are we not sacrificing more cows to to deal with hive collapse? And now this epic is going to take a turn that I totally didn't see coming. And I'm pretty sure you didn't see coming either. Or if you didn't read it and are just learning this from me, that you're not going to... Yeah, because Virgil is not going to just leave us there. He's not just going to tell us that it comes from sacrificed cows... He's going to explain. Once upon a time, 
Aristeas lost all of his bees. Okay, sidebar. Don't think too hard about this story about where bees come from starts with some bees having already been in existence. Just don't. Back to Virgil. Aristeas's mom is Cyrene, a nymph, so he calls to her and asks how he can get his bees back. Cyrene, though, is hanging out underwater with her sisters, so she doesn't hear him. He has to try again. One of his aunties comes to the service to see who's crying and calls back to Cyrene that her son is looking for her. Cyrene is quite comfortable, so she insists that he come to see her, so he does. Cyrene listens to his tale and says they should start by pouring out libations to Oceanus, so they do. And then she sends him to Proteus to ask him for help. Proteus is a god you may remember from a few other sources, but in case you've forgotten, he's a shapeshifter. And just as we saw Menelaus do, Aristeus fights with Proteus, who of course keeps changing his form throughout the fight. But eventually Aristeus is able to bind him and ask for help. I don't know why Proteus bothers. He always gets caught. Proteus explains that the Dryads are mad at Aristeus because he is responsible for Eurydice's death. Maybe you've heard of her? Hades Town? Or just because you know the story of Orpheus and Eurydice? Don't worry if you don't know the story. Virgil is going to tell us. I told you this is going to go in a direction you didn't see coming. Eurydice is a nymph, and she is the beloved wife of Orpheus, that greatest musician ever to live, who you may recall from the Argonautica. But Aristeus has no respect for that marriage and pursues Eurydice. While fleeing from Aristeus, she runs into a river to escape him. Little does she know about the snake who lives in that river. The snake bites her, and she dies and goes down to the world of the dead, which Virgil describes in great detail. Orpheus follows her, except for the dying part. He convinces Proserpina, um, who we've previously heard as Persephone, Proserpina is her Latin name, to release Eurydice. And she agrees on one condition. Orpheus can lead Eurydice out of the underworld, but he can't look back to make sure that she's there until they are safely back in the world of the living. And they are nearly to the surface when Orpheus can't stand it anymore, and he turns to see if his wife is still there. She looks back at him and says, What did you do? Why, Orpheus? Why? And she's pulled back to the underworld, and Orpheus never sees her again, and vice versa, she never sees him again. It's a very sad story. And, and Orpheus is really sad. He sits by the river Strymon and cries for seven months. But being a musician, he, of course, writes a song about it. And that's the only song he sings for those seven months as he's crying. But again, he's an amazing musician, whereas some of us just sound like blubbering masses if we try and cry and sing at the same time. No, he's still good. And there's a reason. He's known as the greatest musician ever because the wild animals are entranced by his song about Eurydice. Orpheus eventually stands up, but he doesn't stop weeping. He roams through Hyperborea in the north and eventually wanders into the middle of a group of Kikonian women who are in the midst of worshipping Bacchus. You may recall what happens in the Bacchae. Yeah, that's what happens to Orpheus, too. He's torn to pieces by this group of Bacantes, and with his last breath, he cries out for Eurydice. 
Having told Aristeus this story, Proteus dives back into the sea, and Aristeus goes back to his mom to ask her what he's supposed to do. She tells him to sacrifice four bulls and four heifers. He's to build a shrine, sacrifice the cows, and then leave the remains for, can you guess? Nine days, of course. Or more specifically, nine dawns. And then he needs to make a funeral offering of black lethean poppies to Orpheus. Aristeus does everything he's told, and then a miracle occurs. And if I had the rights to share the Far Side cartoon about a miracle occurring, I would totally put that on the blog, but I don't. So if you have no clue what I'm talking about, highly to Google and search for Far Side, then a miracle occurs, and you will have no problem finding it. But back to Aristeus' miracle. He's left his sacrificed cows for about 10 days, and a whole swarm of bees erupts from their bellies, and that's where bees come from, according to Virgil. And with that, Virgil tells us that he sung to us of fields and trees and animals. Caesar warred, but Virgil enjoyed the simple life. And this is where he ends his tale. This has nothing to do with much of anything, but it amused me, so I'm going to share it with you. I love Cricket Magazine. I'm one of their subscribers who got the magazine as a child and decided to keep subscribing forever. <laughs> I was reading the, the June-July, at least I think it's June-July, maybe it's July-August, anyway, 2021 issue, so this, the current issue as I'm reading this, shortly before I started reading book four. And one of the articles is all about, you guessed it, beekeeping. It was very amusing to read Virgil's explanation of beekeeping in comparison to that article about modern beekeeping practices. So I felt like I knew all about beekeeping because I just read about it in Cricket. And, and so I knew when Virgil got things right, according to what Cricket told me, and I, I knew when he got things seriously wrong. Um, anyway, what we really can't deny, I, obviously, we could talk about beekeeping, but what the point of this, and when we look at this from a humanistic perspective, is really the metaphor of the bees. And we cannot deny that that Virgil uses bees as a meta metaphor very effectively. Um, he he describes a civil war between two bee kings who are rivals for the throne of a single hive, which sounds an awful lot like the Roman history that Virgil has just lived through. Like, I don't know, Mark Antony battling Octavian Caesar for who would take charge after the assassination of Julius Caesar. Which, of course, led to the death of Mark Antony and the crowning, except not really because Octavian later Augustus insists that he was really just the first citizen, not the emperor, but we all know what really happened. And while the whole story of Orpheus and Eurydice is a total tangent, there is there is not really a reason to tell the whole story when you're talking about bees. Um, it still fits in this epic as a response to that recent war, because it is a story of grief and loss. And what are the ultimate results of war? Grief and loss. 
You may or may not know that Gluck wrote an opera based on Orpheus and Eurydice. Um, there are obviously many versions out there on YouTube. You can, you know, watch some of the ballets that are within it. You can listen to individual arias. If you have PBS Passport, I highly recommend the Lyric Opera of Chicago's Orphée A. Eurydice that is currently available. I've linked to it on the blog. Um, it does expire in January, but that means if you're listening to this episode when it drops, there's still time. Um, it is a beautiful modern update and it does a magnificent job of showing the grief that is the crux of the story. I, I really cannot recommend it highly enough. It I have seen multiple versions of of this opera and this is hands down my favorite. The fact that it has a ballet framing might have something to do with it because I am a ballet dancer but I think even even if you're not the way it looks at art um, as an expression of our feelings and grief and life after death it it it's a beautiful interpretation. So we've finished this epic. We have learned a lot about Roman agriculture, but we've also gotten some glimpses of the political climate in which Virgil lived and wrote. Despite the rise of Octavian or Augustus, depending on exactly when we're talking about him, life is still tenuous. Rome has gone through years of civil war, and we can see the concern that there might still be war in how Virgil describes the land. At the same time, the Georgics promotes a simple life, a life that people should want to live. Maybe a good life for a soldier who no longer has a war to fight? Is this propaganda or not? Good question. So what do you think about the fourth book of the Georgics or the epic as a whole? Pop over to the blog and share. It's at triumvirclio.school.blog. The URL is in the show notes, as always, and you can find me on Patreon as Triumvir Clio, and that URL is in the show notes, too. In the next episode, we'll cover the surprisingly lengthy Chapter 9 of Book 1 of the Biblioteca. Talk to you then. You can join the discussion of this and everything covered in this podcast by following the link in my show notes. And if you're enjoying what you've heard so far, please consider supporting the show with a monthly donation of your choosing, just like public radio. And please also consider giving a five-star review on your podcatcher of choice so that more people can discover the fun that is Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization.